welcome everybody to another episode of EM Over Easy. Guys, this is by far the most Frankenstein episode we've had yet because no, none of us are sitting next to each other. That's true. This is yeah, bizarre. But I'm in our proper location. At, at least Drew is staying true to the EM Over Easy uh, uh, mantra of being at breakfast. But uh, the rest of us are remotely recording. We're actually all remotely recording now, I guess, at this point. I like to think that I'm recording live. That's right. <laughs> you're, you're live on location. I am live on location. But uh, anyways, since now I live across the country, I am forcing us to do this a little bit uh, differently than what we've done in the past. But I really wanted to do a clinical grind from a case I've had uh, not too long ago, maybe a month or so ago, uh, that I think was, was pretty valuable in terms of interactions with a consultant. The, the, the caveat being that I was the consultant. Oh. Interesting. Yes, yes. It's a little bit different than, uh, than the typical thing we talk about. So, Please tell me more. Typically, the emergency department is not the consultant at all. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bad day when the ER doc becomes a consultant, right? I don't think it's a bad day. It's just a different day. That's, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to hear this case because I'm trying to think in my mind while you're prepping, while you're you know, getting us ready, that what would I be a consultant for? So, so yeah. just to kind of give, paint you guys a picture of where I'm at. I'm at a, a, a community ED. I'm working an evening shift. So started sometime early afternoon. I'm going into the evening time. Particular ED is known to be pretty prone to big swings in patient volume. And of course, this was a Monday. So we had a large volume throughout the entire day. Basically, I spent the entire afternoon getting my butt kicked. And, uh, you know, just patient after patient after patient after patient. Like you, one of those shifts where you are so ready to be done, like five hours before your shift is over. I had about two hours or so left on my shift and my relief was about to come in because there's a little bit of an overlap there and you know, APPs are rocking, doing a great job. I had admitted a patient to the ICU about two hours before this, had a laundry list of chronic issues, but they were still in my ER. So I'd asked multiple times, what was the delay? And Got the typical runaround of, oh, we're trying to find a bed, even though at sign-out, I was told we had multiple ICU beds, multiple beds in the hospital, no major issues with staffing. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out why this patient's been delayed. How do you guys feel about a patient that you have admitted but hasn't been moved into the hospital yet and we're not boarding at all? There's no like actual boarding designation. So I, th I think one of the more frustrating things is that, again, like, like Tanner mentioned, nobody that's really accountable for this patient is probably there. The nurse that had them is no longer active. Um, the doctor had them is no longer there. And so none of the responsible parties really have an onus to take care of this problem. So it, it can be a problem because it's the, you know, you're going to have to go start charting, look, digging through charting to find out what's wrong with the patient to figure out what you can do to facilitate that, all while your department is still filling up with patients that need to be seen. Yeah, it's, it's a miserable situation. I think we've all been in this, uh, especially recently. The flu season uh, this past winter was pretty pretty rough. And, of course, the hospital that Andy and I were at was, had a floor closed uh, to remodel, so we were boarding a lot. And you'd walk into a shift, just like Tanner was talking about a little bit, and Andy was alluding to, you get a 30-second sign-out for seven patients, and that's partially our fault for not um, being better at the sign-out process. But then again, this is not an ED patient anymore when they're already admitted, when they're already boarded. Um, and then, and now how do you manage it when something bad happens? You don't want to leave your ED nurses hanging on a string, but you also don't want to get intricately involved in these patients. It's uh, it's a nightmare, and it's about the worst possible situation for an ED to be faced with because 
we don't have to repeat all the, the issues, but it's bad for the patients, it's bad for the ED. I don't really care that much about metrics, but it sucks for metrics. Uh, it, it's a bad situation. It's a lose-lose situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it, for whatever reason it is, anytime I have a patient like that, I just feel very nervous about that patient. I ju I'm just waiting for something to kind of come up, whether there's a piece of information missing or whatever. A short time later, patient finally is leaving the ER, going upstairs, and maybe three or four minutes later, I hear code blue paged overhead. And that's one of those moments that all ED staff know uh, that you, you usually stop and you pause, whatever you're doing. doesn't matter if you're talking to a patient, doesn't matter if you're in the middle of procedure, and you kind of just listen to hear what room number are they going to. Oh, absolutely. Because you want to know, is this a patient that I just recently admitted and I know that room number, or is this something else that's going on in the hospital that I don't need to care about? Can I, get, can I do one worse? I got yeah. a Vocera. It, this was probably a month ago, and you know we use Voceras, which is just the way of communicating between staff and the emergency department. I know different places use different things. That they were in the hallway, about ready to go to the elevator to the ICU, and the patient that I was sending to the ICU started coding. So I literally like am dashing down the hallway of the first floor of the hospital to participate in running the code on my patient that had not made it to the ICU, who I had just told the ICU and my nursing was stable to come to the ICU. Yeah, they were fine to go. Yeah. Now, granted, the patient was not actually coding, so <laughs> they were sick. There's no doubt about it, but the, the transporters were uh, a, a little skittish and, and you know couldn't feel a pulse for a second, so called called code blue and all that. But, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Like, you know what? I, I'm my, great. I'm gonna get written up. I'm gonna have a you know a safety issue, whatever a, a, a you know event charged on me that I transferred somebody that couldn't even make it two floors up in the hospital yeah. before they coded again. That that, that kind of led me into what my next question was going to be: is this particular ICU code was the patient that had just been admitted and gone upstairs? Well, they had been admitted hours ago, but then just got upstairs. Yeah. So. so I think you, in particular, as the physician that inherits that patient, is kind of in the clear, right? I mean, at that point, it's the ICU patient. The ICU should be managing it. They go upstairs. Something bad happens. I mean, that, that's the reality of ED boarding. It's not what we want for the patient, and I'm not, you know, supporting bad behavior, but I don't think there's any bad behavior to be given in this situation. It's just a, it's crappy. Yeah, just really kind of unfortunate. It's one of those things where you, you start to wonder, you know, what else could I have done to speed up the admission process for them? Could, you know, is, cause should I have been more vigilant on, you know, trying to figure out where that bed was, why it was taking so long. Uh, but either way, it is the nature of emergency medicine, especially on a busy evening. There's a lot of things that can happen like this. And eventually you just have to kind of clear the mechanism of those patients that you're no longer managing actively and go back to your department, treat the patients that are still in front of you, and uh, that can be pretty tough sometimes. So Absolutely. tell us more about this consultant thing. Though. Where did the consultant come in? It's coming. This was setting up the oh, scenario. I'm so excited. I can't handle it. So at this point in the evening, the night shift hospitalist is on and my relief has shown up. I am literally just trying to wrap up my patients, get things going. And I'm pretty sure I'm on track to getting out right on time, which is an amazing feeling after a long day like this. Which also means that something is about to horribly derail you. Because as soon as you see the setup for success in the yeah. I can't hurt me now hour, something figures out how to hurt you. 
Yeah, I was going to say that's that's pretty par for the course. Legitimately, when you said the hashtag can't hurt me now hour or whatever it was on Twitter not too long ago, this is the exact moment I thought of. Now, granted, that I have to credit Dr. Salty on Twitter for yeah. for that one. All right, so everyone should follow Dr. Salty, whoever it is. They're fantastic <laughs> on, on Twitter. But that is their phrase, and I completely buy it, although it doesn't actually work. So I'm sitting there. I'm trying to get things wrapped up. And all of a sudden, I hear the charge nurse on the phone <clears throat> with somebody talking about central line access. And I can see the foundation of my dream of getting home just start to crumble around me because I am fairly certain I know where this is going at this point. My charge Come nurse on. gets off the phone comes up to me and tells me that hospitalist wants me to come and put a central line in the patient that was coding earlier. This particular nocturnist is not credentialed for any procedures. Zero. They sounds, like, are sounds like a safe not, practice situation. Yeah. They're not able to intubate. They're not able to central line. They're not able to do anything. And they are currently in charge of the entire f- hospital at night by themselves. Of course. Wow. I mean, so they're basically they, just writing emission orders. They're basically. Just, I, I'm wow. speechless. I don't know how this is a possible situation. Yeah. This still blows me away. And, and you know, I, I know that there's a lot of stuff that goes into credentialing for procedures and things like that and the, and the legalities of it. But just the thought of having someone who's supposed to be covering a lot of patients not able to do this is really frustrating to me because then it pulls me away. Yeah. I was going to say that, you know, uh, one of the places Drew and I work, most of their night docs, their, their nocturnists can do central lines and intubations, but they can't do chest tubes. So I've been asked a couple a couple times in the last year or so to go up to their ICU and put a chest tube in somebody that's got a, a tension pneumo or, you know, had an arrest. They have a pneumo on their post-arrest x-ray. But even then, it's super nice because it's just a pop-up, do it, and I'm done. Um, and there's kind of a basic Well, even in chest tubes, I can get, like... Yeah. That's that that's that's a little procedure. more invasive. That's yeah. that's technically maybe more of a surgical type procedure. But central um, lines, wow. but but central lines intubations are kind of bread and butter. I feel like for most inpatient specialties. Yeah, yeah and, and let's be clear. I, most of the time, I'm happy to do a procedure, but the conversation is with my admitting physician, and I'll say, hey, I, I have a couple minutes. My mid levels, my APPs are rocking and rolling. I know you're alone tonight, or you don't have a lot of help, or destroying you. This patient probably needs a line. Let me throw it in real quick. I can get it typically a central line in in five minutes and and that Mm -hmm. saves them a ton on the back end and the amount of goodwill you build by properly lining and you know proceduring your patient before they go upstairs to kind of take care of the things that you foresee happening over the next six to 12 hours during the especially the night shift when there's not a lot of backup but getting called up to the unit to do a procedure that's a completely different situation you know that's it's the same reason why I, I get into the constant battle with the, the STEMI that comes in in the middle of the night, why they don't move to the cath lab within 10 minutes, despite the fact that the nurse administrator is hawking down my throat to move because we're going to miss some arbitrary hospital metric of STEMI to cath lab in 10 minutes. It has nothing to do with door to balloon time, patient outcomes, anything like that. And my argument is, yeah, when this patient codes and they go south and I'm standing in the cath lab waiting for somebody who knows where stuff is in the cath lab to show up, that's a bad situation. That's bad for patient outcomes. Just like doing central lines in the ICU when you're an ER doc, that's not the setup you want. You want, And I want to hear more about it. You are exactly right. So to kind of summarize where we're at, I still have a busy ED with all of my patients. My brain is toast from an extremely long day of getting destroyed. And 
Now I'm being asked to leave the department to go to a department I've never been to at this hospital and do a procedure for someone else who can't perform a task they probably should be able to. I was not happy. It was one of my grumpy pants moments that I have had. Yeah. Uh, grumpy pants tanner so fun though. Thankfully, I have a lot of it. What? I said, I know grumpy pants tanner. He's so fun. Yeah. He's he's so much fun. Everybody's favorite. It's kind of cute actually. Yeah. Thankfully, I have a lot of experience with consultants. And so I did what every consultant has done for me in the past, which is try to confirm what is going on. So I asked the charge nurse, what is going on? Why are we doing this? And, you know, I was like, I was like, is the patient hypotensive? Did they lose all the access that we had acquired ahead of time for them? Multiple sites, up, you know, to go upstairs with? Like, what's the deal? And uh, I, I just want to know a reason to kind of get an, a, my idea or my head around the idea of what was going on. The response I received did not improve my mood. Basically said that the patient had coded and so they wanted a central line. Oh, because codes equal central line. I, did you not learn that in medical school in four years of residency? I mean, obviously, yeah, everybody that codes needs a central line. I mean, that's, that's like scripture almost. Which yeah. I, know, I know nothing about personally, but, but Andy, I'm sure, knows something about it. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I'm, I'm, look, I'm going through the, the books of memory, and uh, I actually just Googled it, and that, it, does, it does equal code equals central line. So um, I, don't, I don't know. Well, it, well, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. So I, I respond to the chargers and saying that's not an indication. If they have an issue or something they think they actually need a central line for, please have them just call me back and we can talk about it then. That's that a lasts classic about, consultant move, by the way. That yeah. lasts about... I don't really think that's a STEMI, you know, if the triple comes back positive, why don't you just go ahead and give me a call and then we'll talk about cake and the cat lab. Well, yeah, Tanner knows all about that. Man, of, yeah. good job, well, TG. Well I, I told you, I know, I know what consultants do. I, <laughs> I, see what they, I see their tricks. So I pulled that one and it lasted about two minutes and I got a phone call from the hospitalist who was, to his credit, very nice. And he said, I would like a central line in this patient. And I cannot do one. Can you come put one in? And I said, what's the indication that you need a central line for? And I again repeated the indications for central line. And he said, because the patient coded. And I said, I I understand that central line access can be nice to have, but that is not an emergent indication for a central line. And in fact, even if his blood pressure dropped, you could still just give the pressors through peripheral IVs. Peripheral, yeah. we, we talked this through multiple ways. And it essentially came down to the fact that I told him right now he does not have an indication for an emergent central line. And I would be more than willing to help if that changes. But right now, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to leave my busy department to go and do that. And his response was, but I need a central line. His, that, that's, it's kind of what he said. And then he goes, I'll call you if anything changes. Have you guys seen the the YouTube videos combos with my two year old? But I want a cookie. But I want another cookie. We don't <laughs> have any more cookies. But, but I, I want, want another yeah. cookie. I mean, yeah. that's exactly what that conversation in my head is going on right now. It doesn't matter all the reasoning in the world that you give to this guy, and and in his head, he's reasoning very logically through everything too. Right? He's like, I need a central line. 
it was it was a very interesting conversation. It was cordial. There was no there was no angriness. I just you know was a little frustrated because I was being asked to do something that didn't make sense to me, uh, clinically and or timing wise for me getting out on time. So fast forward about an hour. I'm wrapping up. Almost everything's done. I'm gonna leave in T minus ten minutes. You know it's coming. The hospitalist comes down into the emergency department and tells me he would like a central line in the patient. I can tell you exactly what I would do at that point. If you're curious, anybody, yeah, I don't know. I, I am curious. I would curious. walk upstairs with the easy IO, drill a leg and say, yeah, 36 hours. Bye. I, I it crossed my mind, and I did tell the the nurse that uh, the charge nurse, I was like, "If you guys, if they really need a line, if they don't have any access, just go put a, a, a IO in." That's central access, right? I mean, what else? It do is. You, what else do you need? At this point, he is now face to face with me. He is essentially begging me to come put a central line on this patient, and I said, "What was his most recent vital signs?" We try to walk through it, and it, it's getting to the point now where my relief is sitting next to me. And they're hearing this go on, and they're now thinking that if I somehow get out of this central line, then they're at some point in the middle of the night going to get consulted for a central line. They're like, just go yeah. do it. Just, Tanner, just go do it. Just go do it. And, and so I, I look at my relief, and I smile, and I look at the doc and said, I'll come up. I'll take a look. Let's see if we can put a central line if there's a reason to. Because at this point, I feel like the hospitalist that we're trying to admit a soft admit to and they say no and you're like, you know what, can you please just come down and look at them and, and confirm that you don't think they should come into the hospital? Because I, I feel like I, I was in that position now where I have someone that has asked me multiple times to say, hey, can you come do this procedure? I think they need this procedure. And I keep saying no, 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 no. It just looks bad on me. Right. I, I completely agree. It's, it's no different than any other consultant where you say, well, just come – look at the patient, right? If you really don't think they need to go to the unit, that's fine. I won't put them in the unit, but you need to know about them. Or if you really think they need to go to the unit, please come take a look at them because I don't think they need to. You know, whatever. The surgery case, come push on their abdomen. It concerned me. You need to know about this patient. Yeah. I get a huge smile slash thank you from my relief as I go upstairs to go look at the patient because they are currently getting killed in the ER now that I am cycling off. I go up to the ICU I end up leave, I put in the central line. I end up leaving an hour and a half late after my shift. But to the hospitalist credit, he gowned up with me, played the role of panis retractor, refused to let any nurse or tech help, and stayed with me from start to finish through the procedure and then thanked me about, I don't know, 1,500 times before I left. And De definitely give kudos for him being there too. Because what you can imagine the situation is, okay, thanks. I got some other patients I got to take care of. And then yeah, bouncing out of the off. situation, which is not, would not be cool at all. Yeah, exactly. I, I left the scenario. I, I went in feeling very frustrated and I left the scenario feeling very good because it was, I think, frankly, ob obvious that he was uncomfortable with the scenario and needed help and had asked for it and was not getting it and was persistent enough to get to it. And, and, I, and I, I think it was a reasonable request after, the, after it was all said and done. Best outcome possible, probably in the situation. Yeah. I guess my question for you, Tanner, is, is that maybe we'll get to that. Maybe this is on your outline, but how has this changed your feel from when we talk to people on the phone? Because I think this is actually a really good scenario that you know, flips the script, 
to where rather than us being, you know, the beggar, you're now the, you know, you're the person with the power. How, how, how is this going to change your, or how has it changed your conversations with consultants or your, your understanding of where they're coming from? And I think that's the, 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 the main point of this entire clinical grind is that it has changed my, or not, not necessarily changed, but I think enhanced my ability to take a step back, do that 50,000 foot view and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why is this person asking for my help? Because I would say majority of the time, we all have the best thought of patient safety care in our, in our minds when we're asking people for help. But a lot of times it comes across as the very selfish personal like influence that like, Oh, they just don't want to do work. And, and in, yeah. in this scenario, after I saw that guy face to face and he stayed with me the entire procedure, I, I truly feel like this is a thing where he probably, he's not credentialed and I don't know the variables that go into that. I think the gist of it is, and the way I'm processing this in my mind is whether the patient truly needed a central line or not is, is kind of irrelevant in the situation. You have a provider that's asking you to do a procedure that they're not capable of doing, but you are, and that they might go the direction of needing it. And in say four hours down the road, the patient becomes hypotensive, needs pressors. They have a hard time with good IV access. They lose some IV access. Now you're up, up the creek, right? Because you don't have the ability that provider does not have the ability to put in the definitive central line patient needs when for you, yeah, it makes you leave late. It's a little bit of an annoyance. You're going out of your comfort zone, but it's a procedure that you're well-versed in, you're skilled in, and it's not a big deal that you can, you can drop on the patient that potentially makes a huge difference in patient outcome and makes a huge difference clearly in the way this provider's light's going to go because he can now operate more comfortably knowing that that part is taken care of. And it's something that he can't do by himself. You know, it's like waiting for your consultant that you know this is a sick patient to come down and see them and take them to the OR. You can't do anything for that patient until they come down. Your hands are tied. And that's it's the absolute reverse situation. So as much as we, we are bemoaning the situation, the right thing to do is to put the central line in. Exactly. And, and the feeling that I get when the consultant comes down and like sweeps that patient off to the OR and I'm like, Oh, that, thank you so much is the exact look I saw on that guy's face when we went up and put in the central line. And that was, that was the crux of me flipping that switch in my head saying, Oh, I get this now. This is not just an annoyance for me. This is something that he actually needed help with. And so in the grand scheme of things, the lesson I learned in this is it is a team game. doesn't matter your tribe. doesn't matter your specialty. If someone needs help and they're, they're adamant and they have, and they have some reason that they think is worthwhile and they keep coming back to it, help them out. Absolutely. That's, that's a, it's a fun case. I mean, how often do you get called up somewhere else to do something? And certainly for Andy and myself, who the majority of our time are working in an academic setting where... Heck, unless the the residents are off at some education event, I don't do things myself at all, uh, aside from the the couple handful of shifts I work at at an outside shop, and then I soak up procedures uh, like like a sponge. That's great stuff. I I do want to back up to something. You talk about boarding and getting sign-outs. Maybe a little pearl, I don't know. Something I've been uh, much more aggressive at doing, particularly on the critical patients, when I know that someone's going to be boarded in my emergency department uh, for some time, 
when I'm talking to the fellow or I'm signing out to the residents to be taking care of the patient, I'll tell them, hey, I need you to come down to the ED. We're going to be warning for a while. It's going to be a couple hours before they get a bed. We're going to talk about this patient bedside so we can co-manage them over the next few hours. We can get orders placed in the computer together. And I want to know what your next steps in management are going to be. So when something happens, I can relay that to the nursing. I can you you are telling me how to manage the patient beyond my comfort zone, and then we're all on the same page. And it's been amazing actually when I ask that person to come down to the ED to help co-manage the patient with me to make sure that they're getting ICU level care in the emergency department. Very rarely is there pushback. Um, it's much different, and it's a much better situation than when you're calling them in the middle of a bad scenario three hours after the patient's been admitted go like, come on, guys, what are you doing? I need your help. Why haven't you come down to see the patient? You're kind of nipping that one in the bud. So I don't know if that's a pearl. I don't even know if that's really relevant to the situation. But, man, it has avoided, I think, a lot of angst and, and smoothed out a lot of interactions. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very relevant to this scenario because it's the same concept, team game. You're uncomfortable with potentially the next steps of management as an ICU patient, so you're having them come down to just at least smooth over the uh, the rough patches. And let's be clear, most of the time it's not really uncomfortable. It's just it's going to be so much better if I have yes. your input on the situation. Sometimes I'm straight up uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, and then I would just say it's it's almost, it's nice for you as a provider and for your nursing, but it's also nice to get signed up. I mean, I had, I had a case a uh, sign-up of a boarded patient two weeks ago where it was nice to get sign-up from the person that was signed out to me and saying, look, here's the deal. I talked with um, the ICU. Here's the plan. They would like, if this happens, they want this to where when I when that happened, I didn't have to call the fellow and bug them because they're busy rounding on the full ICU. I could just say, hey, and give them an FYI on what happened and what we did. To me, it just makes for a flawless um, care of the patient, which, again, I think we're all, all about making sure it's the best. So to me, it's uh, just just a good call. It's really nice having that plan on that really sick patient that in your head you've dispoed, but is going to be with you for a while to say, if A happens, then you do this. If B happens, you do this. If C happens, you do this. If you get all the way to, to D, yeah, call me. I'll come down and we'll go from there. But you already have that plan in place. And if you get the nursing on board with you in the room too, so that they understand the direction, then a lot of these situations are smoothed out. It's not going to avoid Tanner going up to the ICU to put a central line in a patient, no. but it's going to smooth out a lot of situations in that patient getting that rapid response, that code, right as the patient gets to the ICU or doesn't even make it to the elevator, potentially. Yeah. Tanner, really cool case. Thanks for bringing that up. It's not uh, not very often that you get consulted from the emergency The reverse consultant. I like it. Yeah, guys. Thanks for listening. I think this was, uh, it was a really fun case. I'm glad that it happened because I have learned a lot from it. And, uh, and I think, you know, clinical grind talks like this are very important because it helps us become better overall. So... Everyone else, EM Over Easy listeners, thank you so much for listening. Please feel free to continue to follow us and, uh, you know, go onto the blog space, blog Twitter, site. Oh, nah. Fisher. Now we're calling it a blog space. Oh, that's nice. Blog space. Peace, please. Hey, Tanner, this was fun. Thanks so much, bud. Yeah, yeah we appreciate it.